Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. What does it really mean to be a genius? Well, we all have different ideas, of course, but perhaps even more interesting still is that the very notion of genius has varied considerably over a wide range of times and places. Dartmouth College intellectual historian Darren McMahon has given the matter considerable thought for some time, as can be seen from his highly engaging book, Divine Fury, A History of Genius. From the ancient Greeks and Romans, to the Enlightenment, to the Romantics, to the present day, from science and pseudoscience to our collective need for wonder, the notion of genius has played an intriguing role in what it means to be both human and superhuman. Most of the time when I'm actually doing these interviews, so whether it's with a historian or whether it's with a scientist or whatever, it's very clear to say, uh, let's define the thing. Right. So you're a historian. Right. What exactly do you mean by history? Or, or you're a neuroscientist. What yeah. do you actually what mean is by that? This? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, we were talking with uh, the other day, I was talking with uh, Tony Leggett, who's a physicist. Mm-hmm. And so, what are the problems of physics? So, it's, it's very easy to talk about mm, what right. we're actually talking about <laughs> in the first five minutes. Does that. An interesting thing with your topic is when you're yeah. talking about genius, and when you say, okay, we're going to now talk about genius. Well, to some extent, that's exactly what your whole book is. So we can't now clarify, okay, what are we really talking about <laughs> yeah. here? Because uh, because that conversation is really the entire conversation. Is that part of yeah. is that part of intellectual history as a whole, you yeah. think? Or? It's funny, I recall this interview with an AP reporter uh, a number of years ago when I'd written this book on happiness. And he tried to do just that. He tried to get me, how do you define happiness? Right. I said, well, that's actually the interesting question as a historian. You know, we look at how those definitions have changed. And right. I can tell you how that's evolved over time. He said, but no, but what's happiness for you? And so I, could, I couldn't give him an answer. And that was his lead line, you know, at the AP store. You know, historian doesn't know what happiness is, right? <laughs> look on happiness. That's, that's, that that, 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 that me wonders, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, intellectual history in particular, I mean, and, and you know, one of the reasons why it's difficult to answer a question like this, uh, you know, what is it that you do, is in part because I, I became an intellectual historian largely because I couldn't decide what I wanted to do. I loved philosophy, I loved, you know, religious studies, I loved literature and all these different fields, classics. And intellectual history was a sort of way of not having to choose. You could kind of put all these things together. Right. 
And when you study a big meaty idea like genius or like happiness or whatever it might be, um, it's going to kind of find its way out into so many different places. And so looking at the evolution of a, of, of a big meaty idea like this involves you know, going down a lot of paths. And to me, that's, that's fun. You know, the, the sort of negative way of looking at that is that you become a dilettante, but uh, the positive way is that, you know, you're curious a lot of, a lot of different things. But as a reader, it's, it's a huge topic. I mean, I, I hadn't yeah. uh, appreciated at all um, the whole notion of genius. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember saying to myself, oh, somebody should write, years ago, somebody should write a history yeah. of this. And I had, a, in retrospect, a very, very narrowly defined view because yeah. I thought that I understood what genius was. And so I'm reading your book and looking at it from, uh, being forced to look at it from an etymological perspective. Right. So what do the Greeks actually think of this? How did the word change? Where does the word genius actually come in as we move towards the Romans and so yeah. forth? So the book itself is really uh, necessarily, because of the depth of the topic, it's really charting the evolution of this, not just the word, yeah. but the concept and the use and the sociology. I mean, it's, I don't think... Respectfully, it has anything to do with any dilettantism. <laughs> it's just the very nature of the subject yeah. seems to call it for yeah. that sort of thing. And I, to be perfectly honest, I didn't even fully appreciate it, how many areas it led into when I started. And of course, that's, I think it's good, actually. You know, if you had a sense of, of how much work it was going to be, uh, you'd, you'd never, <laughs> never do it, stopped. right? And so you just bum, 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 bum. Oh, yeah, well, um, I mean, you mentioned the Greeks and the, the etymology of the word. So the, the word genius is a Latin term that, you know, referred to a, a guardian spirit. Right. Uh, and then there's a kind of Greek uh, Greek prehistory to that with the idea of a, of a daimon, the, the source of our modern word demon, that attended individuals and great eminent individuals had a, had a more impressive demon or daimon. And I, I was aware of that analogical link between genius, but I didn't have any idea the way in which that early history... Uh, which is essentially demonology, would sort of enter into uh, right. the main story and then continue. You know, I quote from Thomas Mann at the end of uh, mm. uh, at the end of the book, and he was very interested in this sort of relationship between genius and madness, genius and um, and, and evil, the demonic, and so forth. And a, a lot of modern thinkers were in the nineteenth century too, and that's something I didn't didn't see coming really. Uh, and yet it was so much fun to just kind of follow up on. So what did you think it was going to be all that? Normally this is the, the, the end part of the conversation. So what did you actually think it was going to be like when you started? So I'm, I, I was trained as an 18th century historian, uh, and um, I'm, I'm attracted to sort of pivotal ideas that emerged in the 18th century, so happiness was one of them. Uh, in, in my first book, I looked at the kind of origins of conservative thought, which really uh, emerges in the same period. And I was aware of the fact that the genius becomes a kind of cultural ideal in the 18th century. Uh, and that's, that's fairly common knowledge. Uh, and so I guess I thought on one level that I was going to write a book about the emergence of the genius as a kind of you know, new model of the highest human type uh, in the 18th century uh, and, and keep it somewhat restricted. Right. And you did do uh, that, but you did yeah, an awful lot sure. more. And so that's the fulcrum uh, right. of the book, and that's the fulcrum really of all my work. Uh, and yet, the more I kind of got into it, the more I realized that I needed to go back farther, much farther. Um, and then it just seemed, you know, to, 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 to be silly to kind of stop the story when it was really getting interesting, because I think what happens is that the 18th century creates this new heroic figure um, and then builds up a whole kind of mythology around him, and it's almost always gendered male, the genius in, in, in 19th and in early 20th century, certainly. Um, builds up a mythology around the figure in the 19th century and a science to support that mythology, and then you get the creation of this really powerful uh, human type that, that you know has a capacity to do all kinds of 
naughty things, right? Right. Um, but it seems to me, so correct me if I'm mm. wrong, but it seems to me that understanding that in depth requires a knowledge of some of these prior ideas yeah. because it's not just, oh, it's interesting to do, yeah. oh, look what the Greeks did, oh, look what the Romans sure. did. I mean, when, when you talk about the evil genius um, that is instantiated in somebody like Hitler yeah. and, and the, 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 the genius that molds, that, that uses people like his clay and so forth, mm -hmm. and the leader and the strong leader who breaks all rules. Um, and that seems to me to morph into, or, or maybe I'm really parroting from your book, but there's a sense that, that uh, that's a sign of the strong leader who represents the will of the people and this notion of the people in general. And mm -hmm. that, it seems, is directly linked to this idea of genius as the, the guardian spirit, which was taken over by Augustus when you go all yeah. the way back as the father of the Roman people. Yeah. And so it's not just, oh, this is, these are interesting yeah. ideas, but there really is a path which I think Absolutely. can be traced back there. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, and in in some ways, you know, I, it's pleasing to hear you say that because it, it becomes a kind of uh, exoneration uh, of the type of work I do. Um, I, I was interested in intellectual history at a time when to do intellectual history was slightly, you know, looked askance at, and to do the history of ideas uh, in the way that I'm doing it now really was taboo. Um, there been a lot of work uh, and good work, you know, in the 60s and 70s, sort of debunk an older uh, history of ideas that, you know, we, the great torch theory that, you know, one great thinker, Plato, hands the torch to Aristotle and so on down the age. That work seemed superficial. It seemed uh, overly uh, idealist in the, in the philosophical sense. It seemed removed from reality and, of course, removed from the lives of ordinary people. And, um, and so it was, it, it was sort of cast aside as, as no longer interesting. Um, but I'm trying to recover uh, a type of history that, that does this and, and hopefully takes on board many of the criticisms that have been leveled at the history of ideas, uh, good criticisms um, over, over, over the last several decades, and yet recaptures the sense of the long durée, uh, recaptures some of the, you know, the real genuine excitement of the, 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 the play of ideas over the ages. And when you can do it well, I think, um, what, what this kind of history of ideas does, and whether I do it well or not, I'm not making a claim to that, but when one does, does it well, it can, it does have the capacity to open up sight lines uh, over the centuries that you would miss if you didn't do it in this way. And so I think that's, you know, one of the things that I, I find redeeming about this kind of work. Right. And this topic in general, it seems like a, a very, very interesting combination of, of a concept which has been around for a very, very long time yeah. in many different incarnations, in many different cultures, languages, right. Uh, sociological conditions, politics, what have you, and so there's so much depth there, and if, and, and you only look at it from a Western perspective. Yeah. Presumably, there are all sorts of other perspectives as well. If yeah. you would have a, a longer period of time, but of course, you're looking at it as you say with mm -hmm. this core crux of the 18th century yeah. um, character who comes out. So there's all of this, which is subtle, which is uh, fascinating, which requires a tremendous amount of study and knowledge and mm -hmm. all that. But then, on the other hand, this is a concept which resonates with everyone. Mm. Everyone everyone knows the idea of a genius. They may have a, a, a different uh, understanding or connotation or perspective on it, but this is something that everyone on the street is, yeah. is aware of, they think about, they've heard of, they have a different image of, and so this uh, 
some extent, juxtaposition of, of, of a tremendous breadth of scholarship and ideas, and at the same time, with a very common notion, yeah. makes for, I, I think, quite compelling reading. And I think a lot of people, I should end with a question. I do this all the time. <laughs> I never actually ended the question. But I force you make a good that. academic, yeah, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I have a question. It'll be a 15-minute lecture, you know. Your question, sir? <laughs> but is, is, is that something that you're keenly aware of? Do you, do you have a sense of, yes, this is a media yeah. intellectual topic, but at the same time, this is something which is going to resonate with people? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, uh, we, we were talking about this a little before. I, I, I wrote my first book, uh, Animism and Enlightenment, on a fairly arcane subject. It was written as a dissertation, and you know, it was an academic book. And I remember finishing it. I was proud of it at the time. I still am. Um, but, you know, it, it's probably of interest to several hundred people in the world, and that's about it. And, you know, my parents uh, were sort of scratching their head. You know, you, you were such a bright young man. You could have been a lawyer. Why did you do this? And so I did have an idea that I wanted to write something on the next project that was slightly more resonant. Um, and, and happiness worked in the same way sure. that, you know, this is something that everybody thinks about. It's like sex. It's just, you know, we all want to be happy. Sure. Some of them and are it, sometimes it, sex and happiness. Well, exactly. <laughs> um, but there's also this really deep, you know, sort of philosophical history there. And it's been right. part of a, you know, a long, long conversation over the ages. And so, yeah, I mean, genius struck me as that kind of subject as well. As you say, it's, it's just inherently interesting on some level. Uh, but it's also a kind of window into, you know, uh, sort of things that you wouldn't think you were going to see in the first place, right? So that's the hope that it sort of you know, suckers you into uh, right. to seeing more than, than you might have at the beginning. But, yeah. uh, and when you talk about the, the fulcrum point, this 18th century yeah. idea of, of genius, you make two, uh, you stress two aspects of this in, in, in your book. You talk about um, the fact that during this time there was... Um, a growing remove for most people from the divine yeah. and this idea that the intermediaries that had previously played that role, the angels and the demons and so forth, were receding in the public yeah. consciousness and so thus there was an opening for yeah. someone to be in that gap and there was another uh, strong aspect of the development of this which is this notion of equality. Yeah. Um, when you, and we'll talk more about this, or hopefully sure. you'll talk more about this, <laughs> if I can learn how to shut up, uh, if you'll talk more about this, but um, were these these very ideas? Were these ideas that you had going in as well? Did you did you think as you were as you began this project? Did mm -hmm. you say, "Oh, it, these this is how I'm going to build my project outwards," or or did the full extent of the impact of these things occur to you as you were writing the book? So, um, I'll say a couple things. I mean, um, the, the religious associations that that go along with genius and that I make a you know I make an effort to really draw out. They're there, uh, and you don't have to look too closely at the phenomenon of genius to see this kind of religious overtone. So there's this German, um, he's a psychiatrist, but also really a sociologist and student of genius in the early 20th century by the name of Wilhelm uh, Lange Eichwald, uh, who writes a book, The Problem of Genius, that I, I quote in one of my epigraphs. Uh, and he has a line in that book where he says that genius never loses, he's writing in the 1930s, uh, 1920s and 30s, that the genius never loses its religious subflavor. And pretty early into the book, I was picking up on that. It's also an interest of mine. Both, both the happiness book and Enemies of Enlightenment deal with, you know, the, the, the problem of religion um, in, a, in a kind of modern setting and how it finds its way into different different things. Mm -hmm. So that I was maybe primed to see that, and, and it's pretty clear that it's there. The equality issue, by contrast, was something that sort of snuck up on me. 
because it's a real paradox. I mean, the genius as the ultimate human exception, the genius as the outlier par excellence, and the cult of that figure, so be it Newton or you know, Goethe or Napoleon, emerges at almost the same time in human history uh, as a notion of human equality. Now, of course, it takes a long time to, to get to real equality, and we're, we're far from, from being there uh, yet, and yet in the 18th century, the very first time, you know, somebody like Jefferson can say, even if he if he does it, you know, uh, in contradiction with himself, that you know that the idea that all human beings are, are created equal is a self-evident truth. People are saying this, and yet the genius is totally in contradiction to that. And so I see this kind of interesting dialectic that emerges from the end of the 17th century forward between the notion of the genius figure and, and Western society's need for a figure like that and this emerging notion of equality and the two are in tension really from, from that period forward. Right. And Western society perhaps as, as a whole maybe as a societal need but there's also of course a deep tie in with this in class structure and, yeah. and the idea of, of, of individuals wanting to perpetuate their, their supremacy in sure. some way. There's certainly that and there's also of course a problem, a sociological problem that emerges when you start getting rid of the forms of hierarchy that have always divided human beings up. So when you attack a notion of blood aristocracy, as people do in the 18th century, or when you dismiss a notion that, you know, that tradition and the way that things have always been is the arbiter of the way that things should be, uh, that creates a problem. How do you divide, how do you, how do you divide human society, right? How do you establish the better from the worse or leaders from the followed? And what happens is that intelligence emerges in, in some ways as the kind of deciding factor or what Americans often call merit. Um, and, you know, that's fine on some level, and then, but yet it immediately raises the problem, well, how, do, how do you define intelligence and how do you measure it and so forth? And, and is it the same thing? Yeah, of course. And, and, and that's interesting about genius, too, because the genius is sort of bound up in this problem, right? I mean, if the genius is the, a kind of the, 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 the highest form of humanity, then the genius might have the prospect or the, the license to, to rule over others, right? And Napoleon is somebody who, who really instrumentalizes that idea, and maybe we want to talk about that uh, more at a later point. I think but, we want to talk about it right now. Well, I mean, what's up. interesting, <laughs> I mean, in the 18th century, you get this cult of the genius figure, right? Um, and but it's not; it tends not to be a politicized cult. So you have somebody like Newton who emerges as you, you, you referenced earlier this. Um, the, the, the receding of the divine in the 18th century. The divine doesn't go away in the 18th century. Most people in the 18th century aren't atheists. But I think there is a, a quite palpable sense that that God and God's intermediaries, you said angels and saints and so forth, have receded. Uh, and particularly with these, these demonic beings are maybe not even there anymore. And it's in that space that somebody like a Newton can stand uh, and plays something of the role of the patron saint or of the, the higher human being, right? Newton, at least this is the cult around him, right. um, is held as somebody who can see into the very fabric of the universe, right? And maybe into our souls, right? Who has some privileged access to a, a higher dimension. So you get the emergence of these kind of figures, but as I say, not really politicized. And what, one of the, the part of the genius of Napoleon is that he um, not only is quick on his feet, but he uses that cult very self-consciously, and this is something I think historians haven't fully appreciated, uh, to create the aura uh, uh, around him. And if you think about it, you know, Napoleon's a minor aristocrat. Um, he doesn't have any, you know, legitimacy uh, in terms of uh, bloodline to, to be emperor uh, of France. Um, you know, does he have a democratic mandate or not? Well, not 
really, but you know that's a complicated question. But nonetheless, it's not like you know he's uh, he can completely rest on that. So he's looking for something to ground his. his yeah, and how does he do that? He legitimate. Well, he's a genius, uh, and he does that after a century that's proclaimed the genius of the highest human type, and he uses this in his propaganda. He uses this in his speeches. He has you know priests giving um, um, you know uh, Sunday sermons and addressing them as le genie, as, as the genius, and um, it, it creates this aura around him, which is very very powerful. Um, and you know in that respect he's really kind of the first person I think to appreciate the the potential and that's as I say um, something that Hitler will pick up on again very self-consciously right. uh, in the 20th century and use in a, in a in a terrible way well it's interesting that you use this idea I mean there's there's a there's a self-reinforcing loop here of course there's you're using propaganda um, that you are a genius to justify your rule and then you become a genius of using propaganda <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> yeah so yeah. And, and that has become part mm. of your genius I mean right. when you look at part of Napoleon's genius yeah. at least in common speech there's yeah. a sense that part of what makes him a genius yeah. is his ability to use the genius mythology right. for his own ends yeah um, and and this brings up this idea of how much of this is is a manufactured phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, even with Newton, there right. was this, there was, and you, you very much so. yeah, as yeah, well. Sure. There was this, there was this sense of it. So, how how much of this do you think in the 18th century or before, with this new model of a genius, is is there a deliberate mm. invocation of, of of these notions? Yeah, uh, that, uh, and this actually gets to the heart of a really interesting historiographical question too, because you know there there's a sort of spectrum, and there are, there are those people who would say that genius is entirely a social creation, that genius in the in the jargon is constructed, right? right. Uh, so the things been written about Beethoven in this respect. Um, and, and then there are those who believe that genius is an actual thing that you can measure and identify and put your finger on, and some people have it and some people don't. I'm sort of, you know, in between, and I'm in between on a lot of things, but I think, you know, it, it's very difficult to pull off genius if you don't have anything, right? I mean, I can go out into the supermarket and say, I'm a genius. And in fact, you get, I vote some of these people in the 18th century who, who make that declaration. You know? In the supermarket? And it, uh, not in the supermarket, but you know, they, they do it publicly, right? <laughs> Tongue in cheek. Um, I mean, Oscar Wilde later does this famously. Sure, sure. And, yeah, um, Sorry, uh, Andrew. No, no, no. You should continue. Yeah, that's fine. Um, and so, um, you, you know, you can, you can proclaim yourself a genius, but if you don't have the goods at the end of the day, it's hard to pull off. I mean, Napoleon could walk into a room of, you know, the, the bluest blood aristocrats in Europe and heads of state and he could wow them um, because he had that he had the intellect to do that he had the quickness he had the capacity he had the vision so he could pull it off as it were and yet the other part of this and you, you mentioned Newton I mean Newton same thing I mean no one doubts Newton's intelligence and yet what what made Newton into a genius is in part his own ability and then that of those who come after to promote his genius, right? To stylize him, right? Um, very self-consciously creating busts and images of him that you know people put in their homes, almost right. like sort of religious icons. Uh, uh, weaving uh, a mythology around him, and the, you know the story of the apple falling, and these kind of stories that attended at one point the saints and now attend the geniuses. That's often self-conscious, uh, and you know the the. The better geniuses are, are good at that self-promotion. Byron is another example of somebody who just, he knows how to use and promote uh, his genius for, for, for different ends, right? To sleep with people, to, to, to get what he wants, uh, right. and so forth. So there are those who are, who are doing that actively. Mm -hmm. And then there are also those who are publicly writing or talking about what's going on. Yeah. One of the interesting things that you, you mentioned is you talk about Diderot. Yeah, and you you mentioned how prescient his book, the the nephew, nephew of Hamel. Yeah. yeah, it's difficult. Never so, de Hamel. Yeah, it's difficult yeah. to yeah. not anyway. Whatever. 
And How do you say in English? Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. This will be edited. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but there were lines there that that, yeah. he, that, that were seemed incredibly prescient yeah, to yeah. me. So, so tell us about that. Tell us about that. Yeah. So um, I can't remember what the through line or the thread was, but uh, it doesn't matter. I mean, Diderot is a fascinating figure. So you know, as, as your viewers will know, I mean, he's the you know great Enlightenment uh, philosopher, and he's the you know the, the principal editor of the Encyclopedia, which is this kind of Enlightenment Bible, this compilation of all that was worth knowing. And you know, some people would say that, that Diderot himself is a kind of genius. I mean, he has you know incredible uh, insight. He has incredible original capacity, both as a critic and as a, as an artist himself. And he's very interested in the notion of genius. And I find this particularly fascinating. I find Diderot particularly fascinating because one of the the points we've already said that I'm I'm trying to drive is the way in which genius emerges as this kind of intangible mystical power that you can't quite put your finger on and that has some sort of divine resonance. Diderot is without question an atheist. He's he's without question a materialist. And you know, we can argue over how many there are in the 18th century. I'm the view that actually the genuine atheists are fewer than uh, than you would think, uh, and yet he's one of them. At the same time, he writes about genius in this way that uh, he, he doesn't write about anything else. So he talks about the enthusiasm uh, of geniuses, and enthusiasm is an interesting word in the 18th century and in the 17th century. Enthusiasm is almost always used negatively to refer to people who believe that they're in private you know, conversation with God, right? So religious ranters, it comes out of the, the Reformation, it's the English Civil War. Irrationalist. Absolutely, right? Having a God with you. Uh, and so Enlightenment types in particular use it as a, as a dirty word. Right. Uh, and, uh, but yet, and, that, and Diderot is no exception. And yet, when he speaks about genius, he talks about the enthusiasm of genius. And the possession, almost, that comes over, say, a poet in, in the thrall of, uh, of creation. And that's, that's actually directly related to the title of my book, Divine Fury, which comes from Plato's notion of the, the mania, or in the Latin, the, the, the fury, you know, the divine fury, uh, the furio duinus, that comes over a poet or a philosopher. There are different types of this fury in the grip of production. And Diderot has a kind of materialized account of that. Um, a, a medicalized account, almost, you know, of what happens to the humors in the in the fit and so forth, and yet he still has this idea that this kind of figure has this uh, this capacity to you know to to see where no one else can see, to uh, to draw us in with charisma in a way that no one else can, and so he still becomes a singular being, right? Um, he also is deeply interested in this whole association between. Genius and, and crime, genius and transgression. Well, that's what right? I was going to yeah. say. So you can see you have this this wonderful f force flowing within yeah. you, or however it comes. But uh, as you wrote, he he points out the dark yeah. side. I mean, he makes all yeah. these this, these adumbrations as right. foreshadowing for yeah. for disasters that can come yeah. because this wonderful creative power yeah. feels unconstrained. Yeah. Yeah, and it actually follows directly from some of the pre, from some of the assumptions that emerged in the 18th century about genius. So, one of the things that's going on in the 18th century, and this continues in the 19th century, is this sort of the overthrowing of an older mimetic aesthetics, an aesthetics based upon mimesis. Right. So, going all the way back to Aristotle, you have this idea that, you know, what what great artists should do is render in its perfection nature or human behavior or God's creation. Right. Okay? There are different ways of doing that. You can render an idealized perfection of nature or you can try to do a realistic portrait painting of a face or so forth. 
And that's really the kind of default assumption, the way art ought to be done. Because you can't Inter create. It's impossible. Because right? you can't create. And this is the other interesting you know, notion that I always like to point out, that the idea that, you know, that only God can create is really deeply um, tied up in, in, in Western theology, right? That God is the creator omnium. He's created the whole world and everything in it. Uh, um, and all we can do is sort of reproduce God's perfection. So, um, and that ties into the whole question of copyright and sort of interesting in its own right. But anyway, um, so in the, in, in the 18th century, you, you start to get people challenging this notion of a mimetic aesthetics and start to sort of put forward the belief uh, in the possibility and also lauding the possibility that human beings can create for themselves, create originally, that they can do something that no one else has ever done before, right? bring into being a new idea or a new image. And by, by the Romantic period, this is now seen as almost the, you know, the, the very, for Kant, for example, for the Immanuel Kant, the German philosopher who writes about genius at length, this is really the basic definition of genius. Genius is, is somebody who creates uh, originally, okay, who doesn't imitate, who doesn't copy. Right. And copying and imitating are increasingly from the 18th, latter part of the 18th century forward seen as, you know, negative things. To copy something is to be second rate, to not have your own ideas. What goes with that, and this is the tie into to, to evil, transgression is that the genius is seen as a kind of lawmaker. The genius lays down rules in art, say, that other people follow. Right. People who have talent might be able to follow the rules of a genius, but the talented can't have genius. Genius is seen as something else. Right. And that leads very quickly, I think, from the, the move from aesthetics to, to something else, that the genius is, by definition, a rule breaker. The genius doesn't follow the norm. The genius does something that no one Sets, else has done. Right. Exactly. Right? And that may involve breaking rules, right? right? Uh, and in fact, that link is made. And as you say, Diderot is in, in this very prescient way in this unpublished dialogue. It's an interesting thing that the, the, the Rameau's oh, nephew is not published in his lifetime. Oh, I didn't know. It's published first in German. Guess who does the translation? Goethe, right? The, the great, uh, great German poet. It's fascinating. Of course, Goethe himself is deeply interested in notions of genius, also notions of transgression, uh, the daimonic, as he calls it. Um, and so that, that's kind of an interesting link. But nonetheless, in the 19th century, this link between uh, the genius and transgression and, and, and anormality, right, uh, emerges in, in a very self-conscious way. And so by the end of the 19th century, you have, you know, you have crime fiction uh, around Sherlock Holmes, say, uh, with the, the figure of Moriarty, who is the kind of evil genius, right, who's, right. Um, who's described as a Napoleon of crime, you know. Uh, he's this, he makes rules for himself and he breaks rules, right. And, and all geniuses do that on some level. All geniuses destroy on some level in order to create, to bring something new into being involves getting rid of what was, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of the actual word. And, and, and from the romantic perspective, I guess, if, if you're just quiet, there's a sense that if you're quietly sitting in your, in your study producing something, then, then perhaps that doesn't qualify you as a, as a genius. On the other hand, there are the neglected genius. The, the well, exactly. Geniuses, yeah. the and of course, there's the unacknowledged legislator of the world, right? In Shelley's great phrase, right? That the poet right. can quietly change the world simply by sitting in a study and, uh, and writing poetry. Yeah, the romantics are fun about this, actually. I mean, they, on the one hand, want desperately to be seen and heard and, and felt, and I'm, of course, generalizing about romantics. You're supposed and to romantics, we, we got to do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, but on the other hand, they have this, they invent this cult of the undiscovered genius, the unacknowledged genius, that person who, you know, just doesn't kind of have the lucky break. You Wasn't know, there the, some the, guy in prison that they were some poet who was in prison? So, uh, I mean, one of the things that the romantics are very good at is going back and looking at, you know, Western history and 
finding geniuses. Um, I mean, you mentioned before that, you know, in some ways geniuses always existed, and that's true, and it's not. It's true in the sense that, um, you know, uh, all cultures and all times have had notions of kind of, you know, uh, heroes of the mind, right? And right. so there have been wise men, and there have been great poets, and so forth. But the genius, the way the genius gets defined in the 18th century is really a modern creation. And so what happens post-18th century is that people start looking in human history and ransacking the past to find geniuses. So it's in the 18th century that Shakespeare is invented as a genius, or in the 18th century that Homer is invented as a genius, described as such with these characteristics and qualities that are part of the modern notion of genius. Original thinker, transgressive, and Shakespeare fits the part perfectly, right? Doesn't have a formal education. Um, He's, you know, he he, he seems to just produce all this out of his head without any uh, formal training or so forth. Uh, and yet he's a new type that's, and the Romantics are good at doing that, and they find all kinds of geniuses, particularly in the Renaissance, and it's one of the reasons why people often associate genius with the Renaissance. Now, they're, they're kind of early indications of the type in, in Michelangelo and uh, Leonardo and other people, Raphael, and I, I write about this a bit, but they're still not geniuses in the modern sense. Nonetheless, you're referring to Tasso, uh, so the great okay. Renaissance right. poet, um, who goes mad. Uh, and he's put in uh, an institution, a kind of madhouse cell against his will, and he becomes a kind of cult hero for the Romantics. So Delacroix, uh, the great French painter, does uh, several famous uh, paintings of Tasso uh, in a madhouse. And he, in those paintings, he is a martyred saint. He's been driven mad by an uncomprehending public. Um, he's alone and isolated, and yet he's a higher being, right? He's suffering for his genius. And that's another romantic trope uh, that, that grows even stronger in the 19th century, that genius is, it's a blessing on some level, but it's also a curse. It's a curse that one has to suffer for, and, and the, the preferred curse is a kind of uh, neurosis leading, you know, uh, to madness, right, and the extreme, or to... to, to uh, um, to, to moral insanity is the term that uh, some of the, the, the figures in the 19th century use. In other words, crime. Yeah. It's also a great justification for not being sufficiently well recognized in one's lifetime. Absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> right. And you know, so and, and of course, there are, there are people by the end of the 19th century. So one of the people I write about at some length is is, is Galton, right? Uh, Francis right. Galton, who's the cousin uh, of Charles Darwin, and he was one of the first scientists to study genius formally and try to figure out, you know, how many geniuses would emerge in a gene pool and so forth even though he doesn't have knowledge of genetics yet. Um, and Galton comes to the conclusion that there's no such thing as an unacknowledged genius because you know, part of genius is not only natural aptitude, uh, but it's also what he calls zeal, like you know, the desire to be a genius, the desire to be eminent, uh, and then the capacity for hard labor to carry it out. And so all genius, he believes, leaves a track record. Right, that you can trace by looking at you know the number of citations that show up in newspapers or the length of their national dictionary uh, biography definition. Yeah. yeah, I mean you know I, I sort of mock this and I I, uh, I mean mock is maybe too strong, but I'm very skeptical of many of these, particularly 19th century, but even more modern attempts to you know pinpoint genius and to, to study it scientifically. I, I think there's more going on there. But it's interesting that it implicitly enfolds this notion of propagandizing and utilizing the cult of genius yeah. to some extent sure. because because if somebody no matter what they have produced if it hasn't been sufficiently well recognized in their lifetime according yeah. to this sure. if, if you're on an island somewhere you're doing something yeah. well then you don't qualify regardless of what the actual work yeah. if I had gone off and, and done the general theory of relativity in 1910 yeah. uh, well I still wouldn't qualify as a genius sure. because nothing had happened that, that seems a bit 
Right? And we still, on some level, we kind of buy into that, right? I mean, Wallace is a good example with Darwin, right? I mean, right. you know, the theory of evolution is sort of there, uh, and yet we do think of Darwin as what he was, a genius on some level, right? And right. not Wallace so much, poor guy, but there you have it. Right. Yeah, yeah. And when, when these ideas started coming out in the 18th century and probably before, this naturally sparked this notion uh, of nature versus nurture. Yeah. And, and, and is this something innate, right. whatever it is, or can it be taught? And of course, there were people who lined up on, on, on yeah. both sides of this, and the pendulum went back and forth. Presumably, this started even earlier than that. Sure. I mean, on some level, you can take the, the, the debate all the way back to the ancient world. And there, you know, the, the Romans have this idea of ingenium, which is your you know, inherent talent. Um, the, uh, as opposed to what's acquired through learning and training. There's a Greek debate around this, right? Do, do, do the best poets just have it? Uh, are they given, you know, given their ability by the gods? Uh, or is it born into them? And so, yeah, on, the, on one level, the debate is very old. What I find particularly interesting, and this is a theme that I, I stress in the book, is that <clears throat> you have that debate in the 18th century, to be sure, um, and you hear voices that, in some ways, you'd expect to hear. In other words, uh, you get enlightenment rationalists who begin to be very skeptical of earlier notions of uh, divine infusion or inspiration. Or enthusiasm. The, the, yeah, enthusiasm, exactly. Inspiration, of course, is, you know, in, inspirare, to be breathed into by a god. That's the, the, and, of course, there was a literal understanding of that. And in the Christian tradition, for a long time, uh, a notion that saints revealed wisdom to people or that angels disclosed wisdom and that, you know, that, that higher figures were in special traffic with the, with the other world. So you get people casting skepticism on it, on this notion, and applying a new epistemological view that, you know, John Locke sort of crystallizes the many people sort of tweak in the 18th century. Locke's idea of the tabula rasa, right, that we're born into the world with a, with a mind like a blank slate or a blank chalkboard, and the, the world writes on it through experience. And, and who we are and what we know is a product of what we, what we see and do in the world. Right. So people take that argument in the 18th century and they begin to say that, you know, genius is fundamentally a product of input, right? Uh, it's, it's what kind of experiences you have, uh, what kind of exposure, you know, the earlier the better, and so on and so forth. And, and it sort of leaves open the prospect that you could almost make a genius if you engineered a perfect right. mind. I think there's a lot to be said for that way of looking at it, and there are modern proponents of this view, uh, modern psychologists who would tend to, you know, you've probably heard the 10,000-hour the rule that uh, Anders Ericsson, my colleague, the psychologist, uh, has invented and Malcolm Gladwell made much right, of, that the idea that you have to have, you know, 10,000 hours of training in order to be good at anything. And but that, then anyone can do it. Maybe, but, I mean, like but that. if you look at a Mozart, you know, he had a father who was a music teacher, and he got all this early exposure, and that explains Mozart, not this kind of inheritance. he 10,000 hours by three? Not by three. Well, this is big, right? So, yeah, I mean, of course it gets tricky, right? So it gets tricky. But there are those people who will defend that line of argument, really, and, and I think, you know, it's quite compelling on, on many levels. What is interesting about the 18th century, and somewhat surprising, is that that argument loses out, by and large. Yes, there's still people around in the 19th century, into the 20th century, who, who would put the emphasis on, um, on nurture as opposed to nature. But the way genius gets defined in the 18th century is precisely that it can't be learned. Genius cannot be acquired. Again, talent is, it, there's always this invidious distinction sure. between talent and genius. Talent, you can, you can learn how to be a talented piano player, right? You get lessons and you practice and so forth. But you can't learn how to be a genius. You either have it or you don't. And that's the defining characteristic of original genius. And original here has this double sense of being, you know, unprecedented, but also original at the origin, at birth. 
And so in the 18th century, people start to get really interested in prodigies. And this is one of the reasons why Mozart's such a fascination, because he seems to be, you know, an indication of how genius should look at birth, right? Genius ought to just emerge naturally. Um, and then you get in the 19th century, scientists trying to sort of, well, you know, how do you pin, pinpoint genius? How do you identify it? Where can you locate it? You know, and classify it and, and find it. Um, but the, 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 the definition that, that wins out, as I say, um, into the 20th century is this idea that genius is, you know, it's, it's, it's a play on the old uh, Latin line that uh, um, poets are, um, uh, are, are born, not made. Poet and nascitur non fit. The genius is born and not made, right? You either have it, you don't. Certainly, you can develop one's genius, right? But you can't can't learn how to be a genius. Were there people in the Enlightenment who recognized the irony of that? The great Enlightenment philosophers, the great Enlightenment thinkers who believed in scientific rationality, who believed yeah. in being able to measure things. Um, were there many who said, "Wait a minute! Yeah. This this whole idea smacks of being inspired by the yeah. gods. It's this mystical yeah. enthusiasm." You mentioned Dido and, and a yeah. little bit of uh, not intellectual hypocrisy, but but somehow being able to compartmentalize yeah. that part of him thought gave rise to this idea of enthusiasms. Were there were there quite a few people on record to say, "Hang on, you guys, yeah. you've missed the boat here. This yeah. is actually not the spirit of the times that we believe yeah. in." Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't tried to quantify. Um, I was surprised by, I thought that voice would be more robust. Now, there's certainly, I'll say a couple of things. I mean, certainly there's an attempt that begins in the 18th century that continues into the 20th um, to try to de-emphasize the kind of quasi-religious, mystical aspects of genius and make genius into a science. Right. What I think happens, and this is one of the arguments of the book, is that the science actually kind of re-enchants genius. You know, when, when, when Galton quantifies the genius as one in a million or one in ten million, he's ascribing these kind of superhuman powers to this exception of nature who has the ability to do things that ordinary human beings can't, that gives the genius a kind of mystical quality that lends itself to a sort of religious aura or awe. So that's one thing that happens. There's kind of a guilty conscience, right? People are trying to make a science out of genius even though in the process they don't make it any more rational or scientific. But there are also people, and this is I think the, the more interesting enlightenment uh, playing out of this idea, who are uncomfortable uh, not only with the religious sort of packaging of genius, and the mystical aura around genius, but with uh, the conflict that this has with the notion of equality, right? And so you get a very vibrant debate in the French Revolution about what to do, literally what to do with, with genius. And it, it, it all is anchored around, I have the middle part of the book uh, is, is focused on some of these stories. It, when, when, when the French uh, you know, overthrow the monarchy, or even before they overthrow the monarchy, they, they convert the, the great former church uh, 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 that Louis XV built, that's now the Pantheon, right? The resting place of great men, model on the uh, Roman Pantheon. Um, they convert this into this resting place, and one of the first people they put in there is Voltaire, and then they put Rousseau, and they're having this whole debate on who, who should go there and who should not. Descartes, René Descartes, the, the you know, great founding French philosopher, dies in Sweden in part because he's you know been banished from the country. Uh, in part because the uh, queen made him wake up too early in the morning. <laughs> well, exactly, and it was really cold, you know. Uh, <laughs> poor guy, no. Um, his remains haven't been fully uh, repatriated, and so there's a, there's a debate over whether or not he should be put in the Pantheon. And one of the people who's arguing on behalf of this calls it a crime against genius, that he hasn't been hailed and treated like Newton was treated in, uh, in Britain, you know, buried in Westminster Abbey and so forth. 
And this a debate around this ensues, you know, first of all, whether or not we ought to be treating our geniuses and great men like they were saints. And people actually point this out. It's like, we're literally, there's a whole cult of the body. And that's a whole other uh, kind of uh, aspect of the book that I find really fascinating, the way in which the bodies of geniuses are, are treated like relics. And there literally is a trade in, you know, the skulls and bone fragments of geniuses in the 19th century, uh, all the way to this, my favorite example, somebody actually pays good money uh, in London for what purports to be Napoleon's penis. It's of course bought by an American. It was owned by a urologist at Columbia University until relatively recently. And, you know, uh, so anyway, there was this who, kind who of, a, you know, I don't, he, uh, the, the guy was a, he was a Columbia University uh, urologist, just sure. funnily enough. And who, yeah, of course, you know, he would have had to have been so, yeah, that was one of my, my favorite reviews in the New York Times with the happiness book that, you know, he said that there are a few quirks McMahon has, there's few, few too many references to flatulence than one would normally find in intellectual history. And I'm, you know, but then he said all writers must is, have their quirk, you know. So. But, but probably one reference to flatulence. It would be too, what, too many. One would find so, um, so the relics you were saying as, oh, as, a, as an aside. But. Yeah, so we were talking about relics, and um, and, and that is really an aside because the, the more interesting debate is what to do with geniuses in a in a in a in a society that's proclaiming equality as right. one of its central values, and this isn't lost on people. Um, and there's there's a wonderful debate. So that you know they they changed the the calendar uh, at the, the height of the French Revolution, the Radical Revolution, to get rid of a Christian calendar, and they you know date date time from the beginning of the French Republic. And of course, you can't have things like saints' days and religious holidays because you've gotten rid of all that as well. So what to do? Well, one of the things they put in place is uh, a festival of genius, right? Uh, a day to honor the genius and, to, and, and the genius. And they're debating where this should go in the revolutionary calendar and whether it should take precedence over other festivals. And Robespierre stands up, the, the great Jacobin leader and, 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 and radical, and says, you know, um, uh, Caesar was a genius. Uh, but Cato, uh, the Republican, uh, was a man of virtue, and virtue is is, is more important, is better than than That's genius, so right? Yeah, and so he gets the the calendar rearranged so that virtue is the first uh, of these revolutionary festivals, and genius is afterwards. But it also leads to a debate in the uh, the national convention over you know what is the place of uh, of genius in a, in a society that proclaims equality. And it's a it's a it's a, a problem that really troubles uh, Robespierre and some of the, the Jacobins who actually use this phrase an aristocracy of genius. Are we erecting an aristocracy of genius? Some of the, the best Enlightenment minds are aware of this problem. Rousseau is Condorcet, the mathematician who's also a French revolutionary. And Condorcet is very interesting on this because on the one hand he is the Enlightenment rationalist that you talked about before. He wants to. Uh, you know, he wants to improve education, to give everyone uh, access to education with the goal of producing, you know, more Newtons than a, an old regimented hierarchical society could right. produce. And yet, if you push him, and he pushes himself, he doesn't believe that all intelligence is equal. He believes that there are certain leading lights, right? Geniuses, as it were. And so, what do you do? Uh, and how do you, how do you create a culture in which these kind of people can still emerge and yet when, you know, people have equality of access? It's a similar problem for Rousseau. Rousseau, interestingly enough, doesn't believe in the equality of human intelligence. And precisely for that reason, or at least that's one of the reasons, that he's so keen to construct a society in which virtue is a kind of leveling force that keeps people, uh, social equals because he fears, right, uh, genius. He thinks that, that inequality of intelligence will lead to inequality in human societies. And of course, 
that happens, right? Uh, right. We've built economies, very powerful ones, on the basis of that. Um, and we sort of pat ourselves on the back and say, well, this is just how it's supposed to be because it's in nature. And yet it's problematic, right, from a, a perspective of, of, of justice and equality. Right? It seems like it's, it's logically possible, but it never seems to happen to have both. So let me mm. just speculate. I could imagine a world where we had the best educational system, the greatest amount of equality, fundamental equality, yeah. access to all sorts of things. All of our children were had the highest level of education, and there was a, a generally high level of talent where everyone was taught to the best of their abilities. And somehow on top of that, you could imagine the true geniuses would yeah. also emerge. So it's, it seems to me that it's logically possible. Yeah. It never seems to happen yeah. that way. It seems to happen, and, and towards the end of the book, you speculate a little bit about this mm. in terms of modern uh, sociology yeah. and, and our values and, and, and all the rest of it. It seems to happen in quite a different way. Um, but part of this is linked, it seems to me, at least in the, in the, the 19th and 20th century, to this notion of the genius figure being able to break all the rules. Yeah. So when you talk about uh, Napoleon being, uh, to some extent, a role model for Hitler and Diderot talking about the dark side and the romantics talking about how part and parcel of being a genius is to be able to, is necessarily to destroy the old, the old order, um, you, you chart a very clear path to the rise of Hitler. Mm. And during the rise of Hitler, as Hitler himself is imbuing and, and trying to propagate this myth of himself mm. as, as a uh, as a genius who is who incarnates the will of the people, right? Yeah, right, so. exactly. Who incarnates the world of the people and destroying the old order, um, and and that seems to run completely counter to the idea of fundamental equality, yeah. as you're saying, from a political perspective. Yeah. And what was interesting to me is that he seemed to make the transition. I mean, interesting and obviously a very terrible mm -hmm. way, of from being a painter, or maybe even yeah. a failed painter, yeah. to actually being uh, to exhibiting his genius. And this was part, part and parcel of Nazi propaganda, was sure. it not? Sure, very much so. Uh, and it, you know, when you, you, you learn a little bit about what the Germans would call Genie-Gedanke, sort of the thinking around genius that emerges you know, out, of, out of German Romanticism in the 19th century, uh, the fact that a failed artist, as you say, would sort of cotton on to this is not at all surprising. Um, what is surprising, to me at least, is the, the extent to which historians really haven't picked up on this, and there are some exceptions to that. But by and large, the way in which Hitler very self-consciously presents himself as a genius and then uses this part of his propaganda has, has been sort of downplayed. And, you know, you could speculate as to why it's the case, and I mean, even still today, uh, it's slightly disconcerting to use the word Hitler and genius in the same, uh, in the same sentence. And, I, of course, I hasten to add that I'm not making any sort of uh, uh, judgment on, on his intelligence or lack thereof. That's not what I'm interested in doing. I'm interested in, in, in looking at how he uses this concept. And he does. And it's there for everyone to see. You know, as everyone says, if you read Mein Kampf, it's all spelled out there. He writes about genius at some length for several pages. And he ties himself into this, this German belief that emerges in the, the 19th century and then gets scientized and, 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 and publicized that the, the, the exception can speak for the whole. That in other words, the outlier can somehow be uh, incarnate the, the the whole of of, of the people. Or maybe even should. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe, right. maybe one goes, goes exactly. beyond that. He builds yeah. himself as a savior, of yeah. course. Oh, absolutely, very much so. And, and this is where he uses, you know, again, self consciously the kind of 
quasi religious overtones that genius has. A genius has as somebody who can uh, speak for uh, and be a ventriloquist for the will, uh, a genius who can be a prophet figure, uh, a figure of redemption who can heal uh, and so forth. And so he, he presents himself in this way and from very early on in his career he goes to great lengths to stylize himself in this way. So one of the things he does is he um, he becomes friends with Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who is uh, is actually I mean, he, he's, he's born in Britain, and then he he comes uh, to the continent in Switzerland, Germany, and so he's a German speaker, and he's a great admirer of German culture. Uh, he uh, marries Wagner's daughter, uh, Richard Wagner, the great composer. He's living in von Fried uh, Wagner's uh, home uh, in Bayreuth, which is the kind of spiritual center of a genius cult uh, in in the 19th century. And uh, Chamberlain writes these long um, cultural histories, you know, extolling German uh, racial superiority and German cultural superiority. And there's, and he makes a lot of, uh, makes a huge emphasis on genius and on the, the genius figure. Yeah. So Hitler visits him uh, and, and sort of seduces him and becomes very close friends with him. And uh, right after their first meeting, Chamberlain writes a letter to him, and he's towards the end of his life at this point, and he says, you know, uh, I have faith in German culture, if we can still produce men like you. And of course, then Hitler uses this to ally himself to this genius called around Wagner. Wagner's uh, Hitler's, of course, famous, uh, famously his, his favorite composer. And so he justifies himself. So he says, yeah. look, Chamberlain says that I'm the coming man on the stage. I'm the coming man and I'm close to, right? I'm part of what the Germans call the, the brotherhood of genius, right? I'm in that family. Right. And then this becomes a trope in his propaganda uh, and it's picked upon. Now, again, you know, you can ask the question, well, did, he has something, right? I mean, he's a complete outsider to German culture. It's an advanced, uh, uh, in many ways, one of the most advanced cultures in the world. Uh, to be able to kind of pull off the hoodwinking takes a certain something, right? Um, and, and yet, I think the more interesting, uh, at least from my perspective, the more interesting question to ask is how he does that and the way in which he builds this aura around him, this kind of mystical aura, using the cult of genius right. uh, is really fascinating. And then, of course, when he's in power, uh, he just sort of, you know, the Goebbels and his propaganda people really, you know, emphasize this to great length. And Hitler goes, you know, he goes on all these kind of visits, these pilgrimage visits. He goes to, to, to the house where Nietzsche died in, in Weimar and he goes to Schiller and Goethe's Weimar and he goes around the country and has you know, very strategic photo ops associating himself with these, these great figures of German culture and presenting himself in these, in these ways. And, and you mentioned how this also ties in with one of the things you said earlier, ties in with, with this, this, this virulent, deliberate anti-Semitism yeah. that, that the Jews have portrayed in this yeah. mimetic quality that, yeah. they're, oh, they're clever, they can right. imitate, but they're not the real creators. Right. And, and by being someone who was just a clever imitator, you're actually right. polluting the genes of the real creators, the real yeah. uh, uh, German people who I represent through this, this adoption of uh, the, the, their culture yeah. uh, as the father figure and so forth. And so obviously these things are morally repugnant and the, 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 the important and stimulating, intellectually stimulating aspect of studying them is one gets a, one gets a certain context. One, one yeah. is able to draw these lines yeah. rather than closing one's eyes. You can say, ah, this is what he's doing. This is how he's able to actually uh, actually achieve it. It's uh, is this again? Is this as somebody who's from the outside? Is is this is this new? Is this something that I, that, that other people have remarked upon as well? 
So the, the genius cult around Hitler, I think, has been really downplayed, and there've been one or two things. There's a, you know, I mean, I could give you names of uh, some German historians, but um, you know, the, the, there are a few people. Uh, Joachim Schmidt wrote a, a kind of history of uh, intellectual history of, of genius uh, in, in Germany, and he and he talks about how Hitler uses this uh, language. There was a, a study that came out a number of years ago on uh, Hitler's passionate interest in art collecting, all very cheesy, kind of you know, kitschy right. art, but nonetheless, this was part of who he saw himself. He saw himself as an artist. He was, you know, to the very end of his life, and literally in the bunker in Berlin, right. he's obsessing over this model to remake Linz, the you know, city in Austria where he's from, uh, with his one of his great architects. And this is, he sees this as, you know, this is going to be his legacy. He's, he's, he, he could have been a great architect, but he channeled his genius in a, another and, way. And has this been downplayed because people are fearful that mm. using the word genius and using the word Hitler in the same sentence, they are somehow condoning or elevating his stature, uh, uh, is, is, that, is that the great fear? I think that's part of it. I mean, and, you know, I remember I referred to this in the book a couple years ago uh, before he died, Michael Jackson, the pop singer, sort of said something that, you know, Hitler was a genius about this out of the other, uh, his set design or something. And of course, you know, everyone said, you're an idiot. And, uh, right. you know, he was slammed, justifiably sure, so. Sure. Um, but that, I think, does point out the way in which it's still a kind of sensitive subject. That's one of the aspects. I think also there was a real emphasis, you know, after the war, um, to, to sort of disconnect Hitler's early life as his kind of failure uh, as an artist and his more successful, as it were, life as a politician, and to say that the two weren't related at all, hmm. and to really emphasize his kind of failure, and there were, you know, kind of psychobiographies psycho that you know, there was the resentment that was created by his inability to be admitted to art school or what have you. The, the historiographical, um, I think, trend in the last... Um, you know, decade or so has really emphasized the way in which his early artistic interests and his later uh, political interests go together. And so, the one author uses a nice phrase that you know Hitler pursued art by other means, right. uh, playing on the, the sure. yeah. Sure. Uh, so, um, uh, I, I think these these things too do go together. But I think yes, after the war, there was a, a kind of attempt to you know you, you can paint Hitler as a madman can paint Hitler as a kind of second-rate figure who catered to all that was low and base. Um, I think there was also uh, an unwillingness in, 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 in German culture to tie up the, the genius discussion with what was thought of as the best of German culture, right? So you have, you know, you have the, the, the Germany of Beethoven and, and Mozart and, uh, and Goethe, uh, all of which is always invoked when you talk about genius, and then you have the bad Germany, and to put those two together, I think, was problematic. Uh, you know, I'm really just speculating here. Sure, problematic for many, right. well, many German scholars. Yeah. Okay, we're speculating now. <laughs> but, but, uh, I, so I'm sure you're you're speculating, and nobody knows, and that seems completely plausible. But I guess what mystifies me is there are two very, very different statements. Yes. One is this guy is a genius, yeah. you know, the Michael Jackson statement, right, right. and the other is this guy used the cult of genius yeah, yeah. Yeah. for his own nefarious ends. Sure. And they're completely different, right. and, and it's really the latter that you're saying. You're not saying that he is a genius. Of course. There, you, are, you are saying that he is consciously, mm -hmm. deliberately invoking this particular uh, uh, yeah. notion uh, and, and playing off the, the, all that has come before in a very deliberate, maybe quasi-subconscious, maybe completely conscious way yeah. in order to achieve his ends, which were largely successful by right. the measures of right. what those ends happen to have been, of course. Terrible yeah. is another way to put it.
Um, and, and I guess my confusion lies with yeah. the second one. I mean, there's no possible confusion with the first, yeah. with the first claim. But why not look but, at this? But yeah. why not look at this in a rational way? But uh, anyway, I don't... You've, well, you've, no, but, but I mean, there's another, if I, if I may, yeah, yeah, there's one may, other line of inquiry here, because, so, so I, I, I do try to explain this a little bit in the book, and one of the things I try to show is the way in which this, the, the associations to evil... Um, get covered over uh, after the war. So I, I talk about this. There's a very famous Time magazine cover that comes out right after the war. I can't remember if it's 45 or 46, but you know, right after the war, that shows Einstein on the cover of Time magazine uh, as a nice, you know, grandfatherly-looking professor. And there's a mushroom mushroom cloud going off in the back with the equation written into it: E equals mc squared. Einstein himself had very little to do with, you know, what well, you're, you're a theoretical physicist, I don't have to tell you, but for, you know, your viewers, um, you know, Einstein had very little to do with the development of the atomic bomb, and, uh, you know, his, of course, his, his science actually doesn't sort of lend itself really to the development of the bomb. He played a small role in, in you know, justifying this, the, the development to the Roosevelt and so forth. Um, but, so that is a really interesting image, and it still gets at the way in which the genius, even a good genius like Einstein, who is, you know, in the kind of mythology has saved the free world or contributed to saving the free world by helping to develop the bomb, is still in possession of this, this power, this technology that can do terrible, terrible things. And, uh, and of course, there's a great suspicion around Einstein by the FBI and others. Is he going to, you know, sell his secrets to the Soviets or, or what's mm -hmm. going to happen? But over time, that, that emphasis and that association to evil and transgression really gets downplayed. And that also has to do in part with, I think, the emergence of, of, of the scientist as the kind of default figure of a genius in a way that wasn't really true. I mean, you have Einstein uh, in the, I'm sorry, you have uh, Newton in the 18th century, and there's some scientists. But the, the, the great geniuses uh, early on tend to be poets, they tend to be artists, uh, they tend to be uh, men of letters and not scientists. Um, that, I mean, that's another subject well, we talk about. So, presumably the romantic tradition of this, this right. idea of making your own rules. I mean, when exactly. you're a scientist, you're right. interpreting, you're figuring sure. out what the rules are. And you're, you're, you're right, exactly, and figuring what's already there, right? right. So, um, although, um, I mean, we can talk about this at, a, at length. I mean, there's a way in which in Newton and, and Einstein actually do enter into this. And I kind of think, you know, um, give one a sense of, of the real creativity involved in any kind of, you know, uh, interesting scientific you work. Had me yeah, yeah. I'm there. So, so the evil side gets downplayed after the war, um, and that's that's one of the things that is, I think is is kind of interesting. Um, there was another thing, and I've completely forgotten it, but it'll come to me. At okay, some point. so let me pick yeah. up on this because the, the one of the things, uh, one of the many things that I was not sufficiently appreciative of mm. is this almost apocalyptic scenario between good and evil geniuses that you yeah. portray between Einstein and Hitler. Right. There is this sense of uh, first of all, the, one of the reasons why, according to you, Hitler was so incensed by Einstein. So my view previously mm -hmm. was, well, of course, Hitler's going to be uh, disparaging of anybody who's Jewish, uh, who was who uh, successful, yeah. and Einstein was wildly successful, and so therefore he, uh, he made all these, these, these idiotic claims about uh, Jewish science sure. and, and all the rest of the silliness. But I hadn't fully appreciated the context in light of Hitler's continual persistent use of the genius myth to be able to justify mm. his own aura. Yeah. And, and uh, looked at in this framework, what you're really seeing is you're really seeing this, this great battle yeah. where Hitler has erected himself as this genius. He has adopted uh, this, this cloak of being a spokesperson for the German people. And as I said earlier, is adopting the old genius from the Romans, yeah. from Augustus, as the, the, 
the speaker of the folk, the folk, and I don't know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, whatever. Um, and and then disregarding all Jewish accomplishment right. as just being mimetic, as clever, yeah. as, well, they don't have their own culture at all, they're right. just copiers, all this sort of thing. And then he runs into this clear, unequivocal case of somebody who has yeah. transformed our understanding, who is uh, the poster boy for genius, yeah. as it were, within the civilized world, and what is he going to do about that? How is he going to somehow combat yeah. this Einsteinian figure? And at the end of the day, notwithstanding the best efforts of Time Magazine or what have you, <laughs> Einstein emerges right. triumphant, and from that point forwards, Genius, uh, uh, genius has this intuitively positive quality associated with this as this wonderful, yeah. brilliant, scientific, grandfatherly yeah. fellow. And as you put it, that's really the end. There yeah. are no more geniuses after that. So it's, it really is almost, maybe this is because I, I, I just finished post-production of an, uh, <laughs> this discussion with a historian who was looking at apocalyptic scenarios. But right. it, it, really, it really has this ring of, of yeah. good and evil and then good triumphs yeah. at the end of the day and then that's it. You know, that's <laughs> the end of genius history, yeah, yeah. as it were. Well, uh, my, my, my history is sounding uncomfortably like a screenplay now. But, uh, <laughs> but I think that there is, this, there is this dramatic quality to this. And I think this is very much a part of Nazi consciousness. Um, you know, the Jewish genius is a problem. Uh, it's, and it's not just a problem for the Nazis. I mean, it becomes a problem for Galton. When, when Galton starts quantifying, he says, you know, you look at the Jews and, you know, disproportionately producing you know, people of, of high intelligence and eminence, right? When Louis Terman, who is the American psychologist who instrumentalizes the IQ exam, which is developed in France by Binet and, and Simon, um, he notes the same thing in his, in his pools. And both of them have kind of anti-Semitic, you know, tendencies right. and flavors, so they're not comfortable with this. Um, and of course, for the Nazis, it's even more of a problem, but it's a problem that stares them in the face. I mean, the number of, of Jewish Nobel Prizes is you know, highly disproportionate to uh, the, the size of the population. Right. The presence of, of, you know, great Jewish scientists in the German uh, scientific establishment at the early part of the 20th century is just overwhelming. So what to do with this? And uh, as you alluded to earlier, very cleverly, um, the, the Nazis pick up on this invidious distinction that's developed since the 18th century between genius and talent. The distinction I like to point out that's still around, and you'll sometimes hear people in a kind of, you know, uh, slur talk about Asians, for example, as, you know, they, they, they're good mimetic uh, right. uh, violinists, but there's no inner creativity. I mean, this is a, a deeply right. uh, no unsavory, uh, uh, racist thing to say, frankly. Right. But this is instrumentalized by, uh, by the Nazis to sort of explain away Jewish intelligence as the Jews are clever, but they're not geniuses, right? So when Einstein around, uh, emerges, pretty difficult to deny. They try their best, right? Uh, of course, and you know there are people who say that relativity is Jewish science and so forth, and there are uh, Nazis saying this, and uh, and yet it's very difficult to deny. And so, to my mind, and this is again we're in the speculation part of the interview because yeah. I don't have the smoking gun uh, you know, document, um, but I think that one of the reasons why Einstein really rankles is that he he, he gives the lie to this this myth that's been constructed. This myth that has real powerful uh, consequences, and I, I don't probably draw attention to this enough in the book, although I allude to it, um, but it's very clear that you know, Hitler's power over his generals in, is in part, like Napoleon's power over his generals, in part this aura of genius, right? He makes some rash decisions early on that don't follow the rules, that break the rules, but that have spectacular success. And that gives him this power. He's 
kind of a madman, right? And there's also been this whole science in the 19th century with ancient connections, going all the way back to the ancients, that geniuses are slightly unstable, that they rant, that they're, they're if not mad, at least severely neurotic. Mm. Uh, in fact, that's, this is an aside, but there's a, this, uh, an Italian uh, doctor, Jewish, Cesare Lombroso, who is this important criminologist in the 19th century, who also becomes an important student of genius. And when he's talking about Jewish genius, he says one of the reasons why Jews have, have become, you know, uh, so eminent is that we have a higher proportion uh, of neurotics. Uh, and because genius and madness go together, therefore we have more genius. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, but anyway. Well, I wonder what Woody um, Allen Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, my, yeah. So, um, so that, that aspect of, of Hitler's uh, persona, that he's kind of ranting and, you know, wild-eyed, and then he makes what to the outside seemed like... Um, you know, irrational decisions, decisions that are nonetheless successful, enhances his power early on uh, in the regime that, of course, give him tremendous power. Now, there's also a claim to be made, and I have a colleague writing, I think, what will be a very important book, that, that Hitler is also, you know, very actually pragmatic in, in many of the decisions he makes. Um, and, but, but I think the way in which he uses these moments uh, around his genius cult is really very revealing. So. We also have with Einstein, we have all sorts of things uh, coming to the fore that you were alluding to before. Einstein himself was, um, for the most part, notoriously uncomfortable with this idea of being uh, of the mythology yeah. that he was so incredibly exceptional. He did, admittedly, play to it, and he clearly enjoyed yeah. playing to it to some degree. Right. But by and large, he was deeply uncomfortable with this notion that he was so completely off-scale compared to anybody else around him. Yeah. Uh, he was aware of the brilliance of other scientists. He was aware of the brilliance of other people uh, in, in whose circles he, he might have traveled. Um, but he recognized the need that people had to erect this mythological genius yeah. type of figure. And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about that because that's a common strain that's, mm. that's, that's running through uh, your work. This, this awareness, this acknowledgement that we... Uh, in different points of history, we mm -hmm. have, we as, as, as humans, have this need. We yeah. have this inner need to put people on a pedestal. And so it's not just a case of, oh, that Hitler, how did, or, oh, right. that Napoleon, how did they somehow manage to hoodwink right. us? Well, they hoodwinked us because there was this societal need. Yeah. And in fact, you reminded me of the point that I forgot before. We were talking, you know, just briefly why, you know, why it is that sort of um, people haven't recognized fully the extent to which Hitler and the Nazis used this genius mythology. And I made the point that on the one hand, it sort of draws uncomfortable associations with the, the good genius cult in Germany around Beethoven, Mozart, and so forth. But I think it also points out what you just alluded to now, this, this very human need to believe in higher human beings. Um, and this is, of course, so in tension with a belief in human equality. And I think there are, you know, there are actual psychological reasons for this. And I, I mentioned Anders Ericsson, my colleague, who's a psychologist who, who thinks about these. And we've had some interesting discussions about this. And one of the things that, that he and I sort of speculate is that, you know, even in the level of a family, right, parents have limited resources. They don't have enough time and energy to develop all their children in the same way. And so if you can identify one child as the gifted one, that somehow justifies you in spending an ordinary amount of time taking them to hockey practice or what it might be. Um, and, and so then on a societal level, 
Well, um, we have investments in geniuses that also serve functions. You know, it gets us off uh, off the hook in part for our own inadequacies or our societal inadequacies. If genius is something that spontaneously emerges, if even Louis Armstrong, with all the you know the the, the, the hurdles that he faced, can emerge as as one of the great musicians of the 20th century, we don't need to have good schools and we don't need to have you know uh, good uh, societal arrangements and so forth. It gets us off the hook in that respect. It also explains our own, own deficiencies. But I think there's something more going on, and this is really what's the main focus of the book, and that is the need for human beings to marvel and to awe and wonder. Um, and that, that need, that very basic human need, had been fulfilled for centuries by the religious, right? Uh, right? And so um, all human beings had guardian saints, and uh, we believed in apostles and prophets, and there were figures in the world who stood between us ordinary mortals and whatever lies beyond us, whatever is higher than us, and that act as intercessors, intermediaries, right? It's very clear to me, at least, that the genius fills many of those functions, right? The geniuses uh, emerge from the 18th century forward as people who are out there, who can see into the very fabric of the universe and relay that information to us in the way that Einstein can, or who can see into our souls the way that great poets can, uh, who can know us better than we know ourselves, right? right? It gives us comfort, right, that there are people like that out in the world. Um, and that, again, can be politicized in a kind of unsavory way, but on a very, you know, basic way, I think it's just, it's sort of sweet and innocent uh, and uh, uh, not necessarily uh, dehumanizing, although it has that potential, right? But there's, of course, there's the obvious danger of the charismatic figure yeah. coming in. There's, the, there's, sure. there's also the obvious danger of somehow... Um, not willing to engage in thinking for oneself, right? And this this notion of, of abdicating intellectual responsibility, and and surely if you are somebody who is a fervent believer in equality and general education and so forth, one of the most important things yeah. that you are trying to do is not so much to educate the citizenry about point A, point yeah. B, about point C, but about how to think and how mm -hmm. to be independent, sure, how to move forwards. Um, and you, you, of course, allude to this tension throughout the book, but moving into contemporary times, when I mentioned that that you had talked about Einstein being the last genius. Mm. Another thing that I hadn't really thought of, of course, uh, I, I, was, I have been long amazed at how Einstein is the modern icon of genius. Yeah. Amazed to the extent that everybody knows uh, that if you see the face of Einstein, you think of the word genius. Mm. And with that comes a near total um, lack of comprehension as to what this individual has actually accomplished. Yeah, yeah, sure. And that struck me as, yeah. uh, has always struck me as a little bit odd. And maybe in light of what you're saying, it's not odd at all. It's completely reasonable. It's somehow it's impenetrable. It's yeah. so complicated. Only a genius would be able to understand it. Yeah. Um, and, and so there's this willingness, just as we go to a magic show, to, mm -hmm. be, to be overwhelmed, to be mystified, to, yeah. to, be, to, uh, to be in the presence uh, mm -hmm. of this, the, the unintelligible yeah. excellence and so forth. But it's interesting that there have been no geniuses acknowledged mm. geniuses after Einstein. One of the reasons why Einstein is still so iconic is we can't point to, you know, Schmeinstein and Feinstein and Weinstein right. and these other guys in the eighties and nineties yeah. or seventies or, or, or even sixties. So, so two things going on. I mean, one, I think you, you alluded to something really important, and that is that, that part of Einstein's appeal and a part of the appeal of genius is, is what Einstein himself calls the mystery of non-understanding. And Einstein recognizes this. He says, you know, that part of the appeal of my genius is that people can't, they don't know, they have the slightest clue what I'm doing, right? But there's this idea that there's, you know, someone out there who, who sees into the very fabric of space and time, right? That's, that's encouraging. 
Genius as it emerges in the 18th century serves this function, and, and one of the ways I explain that is at the very time the world is being disenchanted, right, kind of purged of its mysterious uh, beings, the genius serves the role and, and performs the function of re-enchanting the world, of re-introducing uh, mystery and uh, the sublime back into human experience. So that's one point. This other question of whether you know Jean, uh, Einstein is the last genius, and I call him you know, the, the last genius, or whether the cult of genius dies with Einstein, I think when you say that to people, immediately they, they sort of look at you odd, uh, oddly, because you know on one level genius is everywhere, and I have a you know kind of couple pages towards the end of the book where I talk about you know there's a whole self-help literature now. Um, you too can be a genius and learn to think like Leonardo and so on and so right. forth, and we use that phrase or the word with total abandon. So much so that Marjorie Garber and the Atlantic. Uh, literary critic at, at Harvard wrote this wonderful article uh, called Our Genius Problem, which is, you know, we just use the word too much, you know. Um, we use it for football coaches and we use it for um, CEOs and, you know, uh, we use it for good music teachers and the, the, the person we know who lives down the street who has a great music collection so on and so forth. And so uh, I actually think there's a relationship between, the, on the one hand, the democratization of genius, which I think, you know, it's in some ways a kind of working out of this long tension with equality uh, and a way of robbing the single individual of this power, which is potentially dangerous. And so on the one hand, I think this is a good development that we've democratized genius. Um, and I, you know, I tie that into Tocqueville. Tocqueville himself has speculated about the kind of place of genius in democracies or in, in societies of equality. Uh, and he basically says that you know the, the towering figures will uh, will be harder and harder to find, and yet you'll you'll kind of spread genius out over a whole culture so that you'll have productive power and intelligence and so forth. So there's this tension between yeah. these two. So there's a tension, um, <clears throat> but I also think that um, you know we live at a time when it's. It's hard, even when you willfully try to do so, and there are people in American politics who willfully try to do this all the time, uh, it's hard to really be invested in this idea that single individuals build companies or that single individuals come up on their own with you know, the, the ideas that, that change the face of the globe. On the one hand, we have a cult of that kind of figure, right? On the, uh, Steve Jobs, who builds Apple you know, by scratch, or, uh, or or what have you. And on the other hand, we understand that it doesn't work that way, right? That that all uh, intellectual endeavor is social endeavor, right? That, that that lots of people are involved in making great ideas. And so, the more that becomes evident, the more that we realize that intellectual endeavor is, is social endeavor, the more appealing the myth of the the kind of great genius figure becomes. So that we've democratized genius. We have geniuses every. Everywhere. But when you democratize genius and you have genius everywhere, the single exceptional being can't exist. So right. when I ask people, name a genius in the post-war world other than Einstein, I most always get a pause, right? And then eventually they'll come up with people and it'll be their own kind of, you know, uh, playlist on their iPhone of their favorite individuals in human history. You may or may not share them, right? But that he's the last iconic genius in this right. sense. And the people that approximate that, I mean, obviously Picasso lives in, uh, but they tend to be holdovers from a, of a previous era, or they tend to be people who are just not widely shared. I mean, you know, Richard Feynman was a genius, of yeah. course, and yet, you know. Well, there's a great, thing. Yeah. There's a great line in your book, and uh, again, I had noticed this, because I, I was familiar with the title, but there was this, I think it was from the BBC, the documentary, <laughs> right. No Ordinary Genius. <laughs> and, uh, and, 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 <laughs> hang on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we lived, there was once a time in which that would have been a contradiction in terms. That time is no longer, right? We have ordinary geniuses all over the place. Right. right. So let's speculate now. I'm rampaging. Yeah. We've got a massive speculation. That's okay. what I'd like you to do because we're, uh, uh, we're, we're veering towards the heavy-duty speculation aspect of the, of the discussion. 
um, where there's this tension between the force of equality, the forces of equality, which is smearing these things out, and hopefully at least giving more and more people some access to, to more and more education, awareness, recognition of talent, and all the rest of this. And then there's the old aristocratic notion of the single genius who yeah. arises and the cultivation of genius and, and somehow by implication ignoring anybody else or at least not paying too much attention to anybody else. Um, and somewhere uh, somewhere in, in modern day, despite all of this, or, or, or perhaps as a result of all of this, or at least independently of all of this, uh, there's the fact that this word is being thrown around all over the place and there are yeah. self-help books and there's genius. Moving forwards 10 years, 20 years, mm. 30 years, is there room in our society, do you think, the way it's constructed, for a new genius to emerge? Why does it uh, always happen that historians are asked to prognosticate for the future? Right? <laughs> yeah, it's massive I, have, I, have, I have barely begun my speculative I, questions. I actually I have a friend uh, at Columbia, Matt Connolly, who's working on the history of the future now. And one of the points he'll make, and he's quite right to do so, that in fact, historically, historians thought about the future quite a lot. So when Thucydides writing about the writing about the Peloponnesian War, he's doing so not because of inherent interest in what happened. He wants to learn sure. lessons that can be applied to the future. Yeah. I haven't thought about this, to be honest. What, what is the place uh, of genius going forward? I mean, I guess the, the, the easy response would be just continuing, a continual flattening, right? Yeah, sure uh, yeah. And uh, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you something more exciting, right? Okay. That, uh, that I'm going to give you in the next time you come back to interview me. And, uh... <laughs> Completely wrong. How could you have said such a thing? Um, Look, I, I end the book on a kind of, uh, you know, on the one hand, I think it's pretty clear uh, from, if you read the book and it, clear from our conversation, that I have deep reservations about investing human beings with these kind of, you know, semi-miraculous powers. And I think that in many ways, the cult of genius has been a kind of perverse development. On the other hand, as we were just discussing, I think there's a natural human longing um, to find the transcendent uh, in the world and to, and to find it in other human beings. And so I end the book with a kind of reference to Emerson, um, who has an essay that serves as one of the epigraphs, right, uh, from the, the uses of great men, in which he gets at this tension in democracies. On the one hand, we tear down the great individuals, and that's on the whole probably a good thing, um, and yet we have a need for this kind of figure. And I think one of the things that we've done in the leveling, and and not just the leveling, but casting aspersion on the whole notion of greatness. I mean, academics can't use the word greatness without feeling uncomfortable, right? Uh, and and the, 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 the demotion of genius in popular culture has been accompanied in academic culture by, you know, a refocus not on the, the outstanding individuals, but on the social basis that create, you know, these, right. these kind of figures and looking at the social construction of various things, all of which I think has been for the better in terms of how we study things. And yet we've reached a point where we're uncomfortable with the very notion of greatness and I think on some level as a, a society or as societies in, in the West, maybe have lost the ability to make those distinctions. You know, what, what is it that genuinely makes human beings great? Um, and, um, you know, obviously to make those distinctions involves values and uh, calculus uh, that we're uncomfortable with in a, in a comparatively relativistic uh, age. And yet, you know, I, I guess there's part of me that I don't want to see a recovery of the cult of genius, uh, but the recovery of the great individual, and I stress great individual because, you know, the, the, the cult of great men has been that. It's been a gendered kind of cult of, of great men, and, but great human beings, outstanding human beings, 
who do more than simply you know bring a product to market, uh, who do more than um, you know simply uh, throw a ball farther than somebody else, who do great moral things, who do great intellectual things. I'd like to see a space you know for that again, and that was actually reminds me of something that Einstein said very interesting. You alluded to before the fact that on the one hand. One of the reasons he's such a hero in my book is that he self-consciously sort of deconstructs the cult of genius even as he inhabits it and lives it. And as you say, that's problematic for him because he clearly uses his status to promote causes he's interested in. He, he, he's on some level flattered. He enjoys being a celebrity. He can play it to some extent, and yet he's fundamentally uncomfortable with, with human hierarchy. But he has this one line where he says, you know, if the world has to have geniuses, Maybe it's better that it's people like me who devote themselves not to amassing wealth and power, but to simply pursuing the life of the mind. And he says that gives me a certain faith that we don't live in such a materialist time. And so if we could recapture some of that, maybe that would be for the better. But I tend to be pessimistic in all things in life, so I'm not so sure that's happening anytime soon. So that's an extremely reasonable, sober, rational and uh, well-spoken But you're not going to let me leave it there. No, I'm going to move on. Uh, I'm going to move on. It's, it's, it's a bit disappointing, quite frankly, because I was hoping for a wild speculation. But, uh, <laughs> but as you were speaking, I did, I did think of one individual who certainly meets the moral standards of the day, and that would be Nelson Mandela. Yeah. I, would, I would think would be somebody, not, not necessarily a genius. Yeah. People think of Mandela, they don't think of a genius, but as, as, a, as a moral beacon, yeah. uh, as somebody who sure. clearly serves as a planetary example. Very much so. Uh, that he, he certainly is there. And, and that makes me think of something else. You had mentioned Western, so here we are, two white guys, yeah. we're talking about all these sure. things in France. And we'll, we'll, we'll go back in time, but yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the Greeks, and we'll talk about the Romans. And, right. And... And are there opportunities, good or bad, I'm not asking yeah. for a judgment, but sure. are we li now living in an age when there are opportunities and maybe those opportunities, uh, maybe it's more than opportunities, maybe it's a reality mm. for people of a non-Western persuasion to be invoking the, the sure. cult of genius. Sure, clearly there are. And this is one of the things that begins to happen in the 20th century. We haven't talked about this a whole lot yet, but one of the points I make is that the, the, the science that emerges to try to explain genius in the 19th century is also a deeply racist science. Uh, it's a, a science that you know has to have a continuum like a bell curve continuum. On the one hand, you have geniuses, and they're always white Europeans. On the other hand, you have Aboriginal peoples, and they tend not to be white, and they're all, they tend not to be uh, men, and so on and so forth. Uh, and it, this is part and parcel of the science as it develops. And so the whole notion of genius is you know has this kind of shady past, uh, which I think has to one has to kind of always be aware of when we, when we talk about these notions. And yet, nonetheless, from the 19th century forward, there are efforts to challenge this notion, and they're successful efforts. I mean, Gertrude Stein famously says, I am a genius. She says that self-consciously because she's kind of flaunting this kind of gendered, you know, uh, male uh, cult. Um, and, uh, you know, demanding uh, recognition amongst the pantheon. And there are other people who are, you know, uh, admitted into it uh, slowly beginning the 20th century. And then after the Second World War, we expand the notion to include uh, not just both genders, but uh, all other races and so forth. Are there brilliant creative people in other parts of the world? Of course so, and there always have been. Um, and this is the other part of the story that I, I take pains to explain, is that... Um, if, if you think of genius simply as, and as we use the word colloquially sometimes, you know, intelligent, creative people, well, then there have been geniuses at all times and all places. Sure. But the way the cult emerges 
um, in contradiction with a new notion of human equality and at a time that, that the, the world, at least in one part of it, is, is being self-consciously disenchanted, that explains why the cult of genius emerges in, in Europe at the time and place that it does. Not because there is a greater concentration of uh, great intellect there, that's a whole other discussion. People are willing to have that, that debate and that discussion, it's not something I'm just sure. interested in. But because the social conditions allow for the emergence of this figure in a way that doesn't happen in China in the 18th century or in India. Those social conditions now have, have, have spread throughout the world, right? So, um, not everywhere, and of course, very imperfectly. Um, and yet, you know, one can talk about disenchantment in various parts of the world, even at the same time we have a very powerful re reassertion of religion's place in the public sphere. Um, one can talk about an ethos of equality, even in places where it's, you know, denied in the teeth, and yet the ideas are there. And so uh, I think that provides a kind of new way of thinking about uh, genius. Uh, and also, I mean, I'm just spouting banalities here, but this is what right historians on. often do. Globalization, of course, allows for a kind of back and forth uh, that um, happens. I mean, there's, you know, the, the famous case of Ramanian, the great uh, oh, Indian, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, um, great Indian uh, mathematician who was discovered and then brought to Cambridge by uh, by G.H. Hardy uh, and developed. Well, you know, that could happen uh, in the early 20th century, but it's harder for it to happen now. You know, sure, bright young boy in India can go, yeah. exactly, can, <laughs> right. can first of all study theoretical physics online for free. Uh, by, uh, uh, no, but I'm saying, no, 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 I'm saying this is what one can do today by an MIT course, right, online for free. Free, right. uh, and then get a scholarship. How did this become a promotional pub for, uh, yeah, for MIT? MIT go Cal, go Bears, <laughs> go Berkeley. Best university out there. So, sorry. Uh, so the conditions aren't the same. Uh, I, I mean, yeah. I think there's certainly something to emphasize mm -hmm. about the fact that um, the modern cult of genius arose at a specific time and place yeah. due to specific circumstances. And while aspects of those can be reiterated or, or, or can occur and, and maybe something else can develop, yeah. our, our, our current understanding of the cult of genius happened in a particular time yeah. and place. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, too, is that the, the, the sullying that occurs with Hitler in the West, of course, happens elsewhere. Uh, so Mao is the best example of this. I mean, he you know, proclaims himself a genius in a lot of propaganda and then later takes it back because it's in kind of contradiction with Marxist theory. Yes, is it? But that doesn't always seem to be a problem in China. Um, in any case... Well, it's uh, the same in Russia, yeah, though. Yeah. You had said before with the whole Absolutely. Lenin thing yeah. and the tension that was Right. So I write about Stalin at some length and Lenin, and of course, you know, the, the effort to, to study his brain and, and so forth. And yes, it's in fundamental tension with with Marx's notion, and Marx writes about genius, in fact, um, very critically, uh, um, and and yet, you know, no sooner has he uh, as he got one foot in the grave than everyone's proclaiming him a genius, including Engels, uh, you know, who gives this right. famous uh, speech at his graveside, likening to Darwin, and and, uh, and that's part of the propaganda that emerges, uh, and then it's that's that too is is very self consciously instrumentalized, and manipulated uh, by the Soviets, right, who also recognize the human need for these kind of selfific figures uh, and use them in a very insidious way. So. Yeah, particularly when you're not giving your people as much to eat as uh, yeah. might, might, be, uh, <laughs> might be optimal. Yeah, or just shooting them. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Just that. Um, anything left? Anything I haven't said? Anything uh, that you want to add? Uh, have we thoroughly exhausted? Well, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about the science. I mean, um, yeah, right. then you know, we were going to do that, and yeah. I, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe this is best left for another discussion. But, I, but I, you know, one of the th one of the things that I I, I try to do in in the book and in, in one chapter in particular is show how when genius emerges in the 18th century, 
as a as both a power and a person. There are geniuses and geniuses possess genius. It raises the question, well, what is this thing that they possess? Right. Now, on the one hand, that's mysterious by definition, because part of the genius's role is to, to create mystery and be mysterious. But the business of science is to go the other way. Exactly. And it's problematic because you have people, and there's a there's an ancient lineage to this going all the way back to, to Aristotle, pseudo-Aristotle, author who wrote and was, wrote, wrote a book called The Problems that it's people... About the humors were, exactly, that was long attributed to Aristotle, but not that saw a, a, a kind of common feature of great minds, right? A common physiological feature, common humoral in, the, in this older view, but even in the, in the 18th century that, you know, in other words, a genius ought to be a force or power that could be applied to different things. So you can have genius for statecraft or for generalship, for poetry, for science. So what is this thing, right? Uh, and this sets off this great uh, scientific search that I call, uh, in inverted commas, genealogy, I-O-L-O-G-Y, the study of genius in the, in the 18th and 19th century. And it begins in physiognomy, right? I mean, so Lafater, the great early physiognomist uh, in, in Switzerland, is very interested in, okay, well, if genius exists and if genius is original, if you're born with it, you ought to be able to identify it in the face. So he's studying this at great length. That attempt continues in the 20th century. I have uh, I make allusion to a German a psychologist who is nominated for a Nobel Prize who has a book on genius, men of genius, that has you know 20 pages of plates of their faces that's written in the 1920s. You know, so that's the earliest, in some ways, crudest. Um, but then there's phrenology. Uh, you know, the effort to kind of read the bumps on the head. Um, there are ironies here because in, in some ways the, the uh, phrenological uh, understanding of the mind is more in keeping with the modern understanding of a mind than the science that emerges afterwards. In other, in other words, phrenologists believe that the mind is compartmentalized and there are different features of the brain that you know, lend themselves to different functions. Whereas that view is, is rejected in the 19th century, uh, and phrenologists are sort of thought of as you know, pseudoscientists, but the, the, the science that emerges of craniometry, of the study of the skull, has this very crude idea that the bigger the brain, the better, right? Uh, and so there's this effort in the 19th century to weigh the brains and to weigh the ge brains of geniuses. And all these guys went around hunting skulls, too. They wanted their, their libraries. And digging them up. Yeah, yeah, literally digging up. So Immanuel Kant, the great German philosopher, his skull is, uh, is, 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 is dug up in the 1860s and studied very carefully and precise measurements are made and uh, you know there's this whole um, it's easier you know, to great that interest in the critique. Well, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you don't have to be a genius, right? <laughs> you just get some calipers out, of course. Um, and you know, then there are great collections built, right? So the, right. the one of the greatest is still at the Musée de, de l'Homme in, in, in Paris, right? Um, that's put together in the 19th century. Um, and of course, they're you know out there with with calipers, kind of measuring size and, and shape until you know some genius points out that wait, if if the size of the brain is uh, related to uh, uh, the intellectual power behind it, shouldn't the, the whale be the, the smartest creature. Uh, and it, and it is. Well, it's the smartest creature, you're right, so there you go. Um, and of course, then there are all these kind of embarrassing things because they start measuring the, measuring the weight of actual geniuses, you know, and some of them, I think Turgenev, the Russian novelist, has this, you know, incredibly weighty, meaty head. Uh, but then other figures, you know, turn out to be rather disappointing, and that presents a problem, so you have to kind of fudge those numbers. Change the rankings. Well, there you go, and this is done all the time. So this leads, and I know my grand culmination, actually, to the development of the IQ exam, which is developed in France for not to identify genius, but to, uh, to identify retardation, so you can get special, you know, needs children, you know, singled out early on in their career, and hopefully get them special training. But it's very quickly, you know, turned on its head. It has a you know, potential to be used as a way to indicate or identify genius. 
And one of the points that I make in the book that I don't think has been really sufficiently appreciated by people who've studied this is that this, this hunt for a marker of genius, the IQ, emerges directly out of this whole 19th century genealogical science. And so Lewis Terman, whom I uh, referred to before, the American psychologist who spends most of his career at Stanford, who really takes Binet's thinking and makes the IQ exam what it is and then uses it you know, for, for kind of mass populations. He, you know, he's interested in genius from the very beginning. Uh, he writes his doctoral dissertation. It's called Genius and Stupidity. You know, he's trying to figure out, like Galton, who's one of his great heroes, um, how you identify geniuses in a, in a population pool. And he realizes, and he's right about this, of course, that the ability to do that would be of tremendous national security interest, right? Sure. If you could, you know, single out uh, geniuses, well, this is going to be good for everyone. So it's one of the reasons the Soviets are so interested in studying brains. They study uh, uh, Lenin's brain and then many <coughs> thereafter. In fact, there's still a brain institute that operates in Moscow that I tried to get into to see. And for still yeah, you today, you I, couldn't get in. I couldn't get in. And, and Michael Hagner <laughs> was a really great scientist. Uh, uh, Swiss historian of, uh, of the brain and of, uh, of the mind also tried to go there and couldn't do it apparently and yeah I, I was kind of in the waiting room I thought I had all the connections lined even, up and I couldn't now, get in there. Like that, that was a bit you know well it's, in Putin's Russia it's not so good. Right, right. it's not so shocking but you know there's still a culture in certain sectors still a culture of secrecy that exists because there's no culture of secrecy and uh, uh, but yeah, that was really fascinating. Of course, so the Soviets are busy trying to study uh, <coughs> Lenin's brain and other brains of Soviet genius so they can figure out how to, you know, how to reproduce it. And of course, early on, there's a whole eugenics in, in the Soviet Union. But what's interesting is that when Einstein dies, it was his brain is, is taken uh, against his explicit instructions and preserved. And then there's, there's great interest in Washington and you know, wanting to study that. The, the, there's an American scientist who actually studies Mussolini's brain um, after Mussolini's body is recovered. Uh, and you know, is trying to find the genius or the madness or what wants to study Einstein's brain, but the guy who takes it won't give it to him. Anyway, uh, so th it's just another uh, kind of confirmation of the way in which right. the, uh, the IQ exam has a kind of shady past as well. But, but I mean, it seems like very, very broad brush. There are two issues. So correct me if I'm wrong, but here, here's, here's my reading of it. There is the cult of genius yeah. and all the, the history, the sociology, um, the politics, the culture at the time, yeah. all the factors that, that, that can be brought into play to explain when this thing arose, how it changed, the etymology, if you want to go all the way back to, yeah. uh, to the... Um, to the Greeks and so forth, and even and, and even what we mean by that, even the cult of genius itself, of course, is is, is there's a specific case in the in the in the, uh, in the 18th century, or the long 18th century, or or, or whatever you want to, uh, however you want to refer to it, but there there is this phenomenon of genius as genius, the word genius used for social functions. Yeah, broad brush, and then there is this other question, which is well. What the heck is really going on? Are there right. people right. who really are of exceptional ability right. somehow? Are there, when you look at a Mozart or when you look at an right. Einstein, and we all have this sense, does it actually mean anything? There's a, a scientific question about whether there's a complete continuum in right. intellectual abilities or physical abilities or, or, sure. or, or whether there's another scientific... And, and we're all familiar with these, yeah. the, these ideas. And, and of course they overlap. Yeah. And they intersect, but it seems that, that at some level they're very different things. Yeah. So when you have the scientists who are looking at rigorously trying to do that, they are applying scientific techniques and trying to measure it and building their theories, but at the same time they are under the influence of whatever these cults, whatever these, these political so. beliefs are, yeah, historical yeah. beliefs sure. and so forth. And maybe against their will feeding into them, right? Right. Or, yeah. But of yeah, course. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so the, the study of the relationship between madness and genius is very interesting in this respect. Um, 
That's an old association. It goes all the way back to the Greeks, uh, and it has a long, long lineage. The Romantics revive it uh, and stylize it. You know, the idea of the kind of distraught, you know, driven to distraction, obsessive, neurotic, mad genius is a, is a Romantic type. But then there's a science that develops in the 19th century. Now, it's regarded as a science in the 19th century. We would call it pseudoscience. Um, that tries to sort of explain physiologically what's going on. And the, the, the science that emerges in France then it's picked up elsewhere as a, it's called degeneration theory. And the idea is that genius is actually a kind of sickness. Mm. And one of its ancillary effects, positive effects, is brilliance, right? Creative brilliance. So you get this wonderful case, I love this story, of Emile Zola, the great French novelist. Um, you know, he regards himself as a genius, and so he must be sort of mad on some level. You don't want to be too mad. So he literally has himself checked out by a group, a panel of French psychologists, who pronounce that he is indeed neurotic, you know, functionally so, right? Uh, High-functioning ability, so he's not, you know, genuinely mad, but just enough so that he can, you know, be a genius as well. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, so, so there's this whole kind of kind of really silly science that I talk about at some length that, you know, is bought into by large numbers of people. And it, I mean, it turns out that in certain sectors, not at all, but in certain sectors like poetry, um, and, you know, domains, you can understand why there might actually be a link, right? I mean, what does a poet do well? Draws, you know, associations or metaphors between things that to the outside observer might be completely unrelated or extraneous. Well, if you push that same ability, you end it, you know, schizophrenia, right? I mean, sort of the ability to kind of make, you know, uh, meaning out of the, the meaningless. Now, uh, you know, and there's still debates on whether or not there's any kind of, you know, uh, component. You could see how you could understand it in certain sectors. Clearly, uh, in others, um, you know, uh, that madness and genius wouldn't go together at all. Uh, and Galton, when he emerges in the, in the 19th century, really wants to deny this connection altogether. He says, look, you know, geniuses are on average more robust, healthy, they're kind of superman creatures, right? Uh, and that's something that Terman himself uh, reiterates. But nonetheless, the, the original point I was making is that so you get this old association with genius and madness that also feeds into this religious notion of the genius as a kind of exalted seer, right? Uh, who's singled out and overtaken by this possessive power, literally this divine fury or enthusiasm, right. and who rants and in the middle, just like the ancient Sibyl, you know, in the, uh, the the oracle at Delphi, makes these prophetic or profound statements. And so the science confirms a kind of religious uh, or prophetic notion that that further enhances the the aura of the genius, right? That's great. That's a great cool. point to end on. Yeah. Thanks, sir. This Thank you. Oh, it was a lot of fun. You know, I tell you, I, I did. I probably did 300 interviews for the Happiness Book of yeah. various kinds of radio ones. And one of the things you, you learn very quickly is that you know, there's a kind of uh, interview where you talk to somebody who's you know, the producer gave him the sheet 15 minutes before, right. 15 seconds before you went on air, and it's really kind of a painful, laborious process. And then there's the kind of interview like this one where you actually have a really converse, good conversation, and you 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 sharpen the way you think about things in the process, or you you know, in response to question, you're forced to think about things you hadn't been asked before. So. Thank you. It was a genuine pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About the History of Ideas, along with separate discussions with Stefan Kalini, Martin Jay, Hankesh Mishra, and Quentin Skinner. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. For those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in, are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.